Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Usually, when we think about sickness, we think of things that have gone wrong in our body. But as the pandemic has highlighted, so many other factors outside of us, things like our social and economic situation, also affect our health. That's the premise of social medicine, and it's what Dr. Andrew Buzari does. He's the executive director of social medicine and population health at the University Health Network, a group of hospitals in Toronto. And his focus, as a physician researcher, is how homelessness affects health. The latest data that we have is that actually, during the pandemic, it costs $6,600 a month to have somebody in a shelter. And then when you look at the cost for supportive housing, at you know $2,200 to $2,500. Today on the show, Dr. Andrew Buzari on prescribing a home and why he says that would benefit our healthcare system. This is The Decibel. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I want to start by asking you about something you tweeted in January. Uh, You tweeted a picture of a Toronto City bus at night with about half a dozen people who had their bags with them. uh, And it looks like they're sleeping on the bus or, or trying to stay out of the cold. And you wrote in this tweet, Do not look away. This is Canada's failure on housing as a human right. How does tweeting this picture relate to your work as a doctor? I think really what we've, you know, tried to really put forward within the pandemic about social medicine is how all of us are more connected, but all of the decisions and choices that we make as a system, as a society, these are the things that actually have the most dramatic impact on one's health and on our population's health. And so when we think about, you know, the work that we have to do in medicine in terms of trying to you know, diagnose a problem and try to do the best we can in providing the right therapeutics. It has been so clear now for decades that one of the most pathological things happening is that we are failing on housing as a human right and that it has had a, you know, massive impact on how uh, people are living, but also their health, you know, every facet of their life. Uh, People having to survive homelessness is by and far the most devastating diagnosis. It's a terminal diagnosis that we've uh, imposed on people with the policy choices that have been made. So maybe you can help us understand, I guess, how exactly all these things connect. So if, if you could prescribe housing for some of your patients, how would that help them, but also help ease the burden, I guess, on the, the healthcare system then? If you are someone who is chronically homeless in the sense of not having a place to stay or have been, you know, surviving homelessness, uh, your life expectancy is half as long as the general public. So people to live to their 40s when the average life expectancy is about 82, right? And so this speaks to, again, of where we've seen the, the therapeutic needing to be housing because this is about pathological policy. And so when we're looking at these prescriptions, 
you know, housing is able to ensure that people can get supports to where they're at. They can have the stability to be able to actually, you know, safely have their medications if need be, develop an actual life that they, you know, want with their own choice. And I think the other piece that, you know, we can talk a lot about the, you know, the data and the therapeutics, but it, this is also fundamentally about human dignity. And in the pandemic, there was, you know, some great responses across the country from, you know, hospitals and community partners and, you know, municipal partners to try to say, you know, if, if people cannot distance, which they cannot in the shelter system, you know, we should move people into hotels and ensure that the supports are there and people can have their own room and be safe to physically distance, especially as we saw this play out pre-vaccine. And that's where many of us felt like this is going to be a huge change and shift because, I mean, the stories that I will never forget are people, you know, in tears because they've never had their own bed and bathroom. And I was like, how are we going to go back to what we had before? I mean, I'm saying going back to normal. I mean, normal has been fundamentally unjust. You mentioned um, the shelter system there, Andrew. What have you seen that tells you that that system itself is not enough? You know, a shelter system is not a solution to homelessness the same way, you know, food banks are not a policy solution to food insecurity. When the shelter system was established, it was about ensuring that people could have an emergency place to stay for a number of days or potentially a number of weeks. We now have, you know, for the 8,000 people in Toronto who are surviving homelessness each night, over 25% have been homeless or underhoused or without housing for over five years. 60% of people surviving homelessness are racialized. When you look at 30% being refugees and newcomers, and we have to be clear about this structural discrimination that takes place of the systemic racism that has marginalized and silenced and tried to deny, you know, these, these voices and stories about what the realities have been. And there has been an active effort to try to always paint this as, you know, individual failures or bad choices and the onus is on the person. Uh, but when you hear these stories, when you work with people, when you allow that to take place, see that there's not a whole lot separating many of us of you know being able to you know try to rent or afford a house in a housing crisis from being uh, underhoused or unhoused and that it's not you know the case of some moral failure the moral failure is deeply embedded within the policies that we have chosen Andrew, let's turn to the system here. Uh, a major factor is is money. How much would it cost us to house everyone who is chronically homeless? I would push on policymakers and for us as the public. You know, can we afford the status quo? How much longer can we afford to have tens of thousands of people in this country without housing? When we look at the economics in terms of how much it could cost. The latest data that we have is that actually during the pandemic, it costs 
$6,600 a month to have somebody in a shelter. And then when you look at the cost for supportive housing at, you know, $2,200 to $2,500, the economic argument is stark. The moral argument is there. And the health consequences uh, are significant. And and these are costs for Toronto. I just I just want to clarify that's Yes, correct. this is the city of Toronto, you know, data that has come out in terms of the costing. It's a major economic argument when you're talking about a two to threefold difference. And when you look at the healthcare utilization aspect, which about, you know, the fact that our failure on housing as a human right is pushing people into emergency departments or buses to get warmth and potentially a sandwich and to feel safe. I mean, that is a massive failure from a system perspective. And when I was training in medical school, you know, the, the view was always, well, oh, the, you know, so-and-so's back is a frequent flyer. And I think the other thing we have to upend and shift is, no, that's not about being a frequent flyer. We're underserving these patients. We're underserving these people as to why they have to come into an emergency department to have their basic needs met. You have to call out the fact that, you know, when people say, well, we don't have the money. I mean, if we have billions of dollars to spend on highways, but not housing, we as a society, as people, as governments are going to have to make choices. The country is also facing a housing crisis too, though. I mean, the cost of a house, even the cost of rent for people in many Canadian cities, it's nearly unaffordable for a lot of people. I, I guess the question is, where do we draw the line of, of who we can help here? You know, if we're helping a certain group of people with the cost of a house or a home, where do we draw that line? Yeah, I, I, as a physician, I don't like the line drawing part because my view will be, we need housing for all, right? And I think, of course, there's going to be different scenarios and options for people, but we need to actually ensure that there's a preferential option for people who've been surviving homelessness because they have been punished for years and decades. And to then say, well, they're not going to be a priority now. I mean, that is unbelievably cruel. You are making a, a good a good point here, but I guess the the sticking point for some people, you know, maybe not not someone who's particularly wealthy or anything, but who is working hard to scrounge together for rent and is paying for rent in a city that's costing them a lot, um, and then other people are getting housing for free. I guess that's the kind of the common criticism that might come up that some people are are getting for free what others are working really hard to try to pay for. And it's right as as people throughout this, who've been working and doing everything they can to pay their rent, to take care of each other, uh, are in a situation where people who can afford, you know, their third and fourth home uh, are pricing people out of a market. Uh, and then there's been a complete market failure in, you know, the punishment for people without housing. So I actually think we can't draw lines on this. You have to pull together around, you know, people who uh, have been punished around the issue around homelessness, needing to get the supports that are there. And that also means the supports need to be there for people who have been working uh, and, you know, are, you know, doing the skip. But it's also important, I think, to, to lay out that this isn't just about, you know, that people who are not working get free, you know, quote unquote, free housing and people who are working get housing. People who are working are are homeless, People, children under 16 are 
surviving homelessness. So this we have to disentangle and and push back on this this view and this perception that's been pushed out that there's again this kind of moral line that if you're on this side and you've been working and you've been quote unquote contributing to society, well you have the right to housing. But if you're not, well, you know, maybe the shelter will do. Obviously, you've done a lot of work in this area, and uh, the UHN, University Health Network of Hospitals here in Toronto, it's working on a project right now in the city focused on building a social medicine modular housing facility. What is this project about? Yeah, well, when we look at what we've been able to do in the last uh, two years is to partner with community organizations, community leaders, and the city of Toronto uh, and the, the hospital network to dedicate some land that was there for uh, a, the building of a four-story uh, apartment building that uh, would have 51 units. Uh, and also ensuring, I think that the part that makes it a bit unique is not only about the partnerships of how this you know sort of has, has come to be, but the kind of supports that'll be there for people, both from the health supports and some of the social supports. When we look at you know, elements there, again, from, you know, harm reduction and social supports to medical and nursing and uh, sort of virtual health uh, aspects. It's really drawing on the experiences that we've had through the pandemic with respect to a hotel recovery site that was there for people who are surviving homelessness. And one of the things that we're able to see for people who were in the shelter system, you know, coming into the, the hotels is that they had access to peer workers, uh, they've had access to some medical and social supports that were there. Uh, and that's something that we're trying to build into and ensure that it's not lost in the pandemic with the social medicine housing units that are, you know, hopefully to be up uh, within this year. And is this like a temporary solution or how long will they get to stay in these units? Well, it's to be, you know, permanent. It's to be permanent housing. And again, in terms of where you know people are, will need the the units. And again, I think there's the hope of where people may you know, choose to, to move at various times if there's different life circumstances. But this is really to be, you know, a, a housing solution and housing option for people that has not been there. You have mentioned funding for this issue before, and I do want to bring up that the federal government has a, a national housing strategy. And last year's budget committed $1.5 billion more to their rapid housing initiative. Is this enough to start making a real difference here? Well, I think any of the investments to be sizable are going to make a difference. But I think, again, this is something where we need every level of government to be committed. No one level of government is going to be able to do this alone. Just lastly here, Andrew, I think a lot of people might generally support this idea of not wanting people to experience homelessness. But a lot of people honestly may say that you know, they don't want to live across the street from maybe one of these modular housing facilities. This is the old NIMBY argument, right? The not in my backyard. What would you say to people, uh, you know, in your own neighborhood, maybe, who might not be supportive of having this kind of facility close to home? You know, I, when when you think about what we've all been through the last two years, uh, to then hear these sorts of arguments um, you know, it, it can really pain and enrage you when for many of us working in the front lines of the pandemic, we would do anything to ensure that people could get safety from the virus, safety from uh, the 
you know, the all of the the health risks that have been there for people who've been surviving homelessness. And as we are trying to get through this and thinking about all of the people that we've lost and people that we've lost in shelter spaces, people having to live outside. I think if there's one thing around the pandemic is we were able to see homelessness in ways that we just had in pre-pandemic because of the decisions people had to make to take care of each other. And I think, you know, around people, you know, having, having to live in parks. So, you know, to me, you can't come out with the argument to say, well, I don't want folks living in the public park. They can't do that. And then when there's housing options on your block, say, well, that can't happen as well. Well, where would you like that to take place? And nobody makes those decisions around us when we want to move or rent or, or move into a neighborhood. For those of us who work in these spaces and see the real uh, humanity, the strength, the resilience, the care that people have for each other who've been surviving homelessness, for you know neighborhoods to try to turn their back on that, you know, I, I think that there's there's real consequences to it, and it's it's going to be people who continue to be punished for no fault of their own. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you tomorrow.